Maya Angelou once said, hate has caused a lot of problems in the world, but not solved one yet. The lead starts right now. A supermarket massacre motivated by racism and other forms of hate, officials say. This hour, more victims identified as we learn new details about another threat from the suspected killer months before Saturday's attack. Plus, Ukraine's secret police on a special mission to weed out Russian spies, spies among the Ukrainian military and civilian population. And breaking now, new recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics for parents dealing with the baby formula shortage. We will bring that right to you. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead. National lead. Any moment we expect an update from Buffalo police after that racist massacre in upstate New York. Ten innocent people killed by a racist domestic terrorist who targeted individuals in a grocery store in a predominantly black area of town on Saturday. Locals officials say it actually could have been even worse. Police believe the shooter planned to continue his rampage on Saturday after leaving the store with his sick goal of killing as many black people as possible. The shooter was wearing tactical gear, armed with an AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle. Police say he had surveilled the area the day before. This new video, just in, shows the moment the suspect was arrested. The Erie County Sheriff called the attack a, quote, straight-up, racially-motivated hate crime from somebody outside of our community, unquote. The alleged killer lived at home with his parents more than three hours away. Today, investigators are parsing through a 180-page screed allegedly written by the killer. The author details how he had been radicalized by reading online message boards and was fixated on what's known as white replacement theory. That's this racist, false idea that forces are conspiring to slowly and intentionally replace white people in the United States with minorities and immigrants. Elements of this racist, false theory have been cited as motivating other mass murderers in recent years, ones who targeted minorities, from the Tree of Life synagogue massacre of Jews in Pittsburgh 2018, the El Paso Walmart slaughter of Latinos and the mosque attacks on Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019. CNN's Brian Todd starts off our coverage today from Conklin, New York, where the suspected killer is from, with more on what investigators are learning today about the meticulous planning behind this horrific attack. This was a straight-up hate crime, pure evil. Police are learning about the meticulous planning that went into the massacre of 10 people at a Buffalo store and how it could have been worse. He had plans had he gotten out of here to continue his rampage and uh, and continue shooting people. He'd even spoken about possibly going to another store. The gunman killed several people in the parking lot, exchanged gunfire with a security guard and shot more people in the store before surrendering to police. He was very heavily armed. He had tactical gear. He had a tactical helmet on. He had a camera that he was live streaming what he was doing. CNN obtained a 180-page statement attributed to the suspect, which was posted online just before the attack. The document details how the shooter has been radicalized by online message boards, describing the great replacement theory, which suggests the false belief that the white race is dying out. He had the N-word, which unfortunately uh, was carved into one of his weapons. Clearly he was bent on hate. Um, He was focused on a a replacement theory, this theory uh, that white individuals will be replaced by immigrants and people of color and Jewish individuals. The shooter allegedly wrote he'd chosen the store based on the racial makeup of its zip code, and he had been serious about carrying out the attack since January. 
He'd been buying ammo, surplus military gear, and shooting irregularly, and had mapped out the store, intending to shoot all black people. The main gun, a Bushmaster XM-15, was bought from this gun store before he illegally modified it. But according to the New York Times, he had no problem purchasing the weapon even after an incident at the Susquehanna Valley High School last June, when he was a student there, on the honor roll school document show. The uh, gun dealer was able to sell these weapons to this individual. Uh, because there were no red flags that came up. A spokesperson for the school district tells CNN the suspect was interviewed by police after he made an ominous reference to murder-suicide in a school project, although there was no specific threat. He stated um, a facility. I don't, I'm not sure if it was a hospital or, or a mental health facility for a day and a half. The gunman's neighbors we spoke to didn't want to give their names. They are frustrated. Something got missed. You know, if he was flagged in high school, why didn't he get the mental health care he needed then? And the system failed him that caused this tragedy to occur. They say the shooter was quiet and seemed like a normal teenager. Then when I found out he was from County, I said, I sure as hell hope he isn't from, from Cockland. So, and then it turns out he was. And then it turns out he's loose on my street. So we were all totally shocked about this whole thing. The suspect has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. I spoke to the owner of a convenience store where the suspect worked until about three months ago who described him as a very quiet employee, that he didn't stand out much beyond that. And this owner said to me, quote, I'm sure he'll pay a huge price for this, as he should. Jake? Brian Todd in Conklin, New York, for us. Thanks so much. Today we're learning more about the 10 people who senselessly lost their lives on Saturday. They ranged in age from 32 to 86. Among them was Aaron Salter. Mr. Salter was working as the supermarket security guard. He fired multiple shots at the suspect. And as CNN's Jason Carroll reports for us now, his actions saved the lives of multiple people inside the store when the rampage began. He died while trying to save others. That's how those who knew Aaron Salter say he should be remembered. He was a strong individual. Uh, He was a warm individual, a real caring person cared about the community, uh, someone who devoted a lot of his life uh, to public safety, uh, to keeping the community safe. Buffalo's mayor, Byron Brown, knew Salter for years, back when Salter was a Buffalo police officer. I remember first meeting him through his parents, uh, Aaron and Carol Salter, uh, very warm people. They had a business in the community, and I saw him as a loving son always trying to take care of his parents, make sure his parents were okay. That's the kind of person that he was. Uh, He had a caring spirit uh, and a desire to take care of other people. That desire helped Salter rise through the ranks in the police department. He eventually became a lieutenant. His love of community and law enforcement was one of the reasons he went to work as a security guard at the top supermarket after he retired from the force. Saturday, armed only with a handgun, he engaged the shooter. He went down fighting. He came in, he went towards the gunfire, he went towards the fight. Um, He shot the individual, uh, but because of his armor plating uh, vest, it uh, had no effect on him. Law enforcement officials say it is clear he saved many lives. My daughter was crouched down in the front end for the entire shooting. His actions gave Fragrance Harris Stanfield, who works at the market with her daughter, the time they needed to take cover. 
everyone started running at that point. Um, I grabbed my daughter, kept running, and kept running until I got all the way to the back door. Those who knew Salter say even though he retired from the force, he never stopped being a police officer. I think you would want to be remembered as someone who cared about his community, uh, who cares about, cared about his family, and someone that did his job and stood up when other people were in danger trying to keep others safe. Salter was 55 years old, even though he was not a police officer at the time of his death. Due to his actions, there had been this movement up there in Buffalo to have him buried with a formal service as if he was an active police officer. Uh, The mayor is behind that, waiting to hear from the family to see what is best. Jake. Jason Carroll in New York, thanks so much. Officials in Buffalo are starting a news conference about the latest information. Let's listen in. Continue to move forward as a strong city of Buffalo, county of Erie, and western New York region. Uh, Late today, we have been made aware of many social media posts going around with possible threats. I want to be clear, Buffalo police and our partnering law enforcement agencies standing here are investigating these social media posts and will prosecute if necessary, and I want to emphasize arrests have already been made, and you'll be here hearing more about those. I'm now going to turn things over to Buffalo Police Commissioner Joseph Grimalia. Thank you, Mayor. So, as I said before, this is a, a very long investigation. It's going to continue to be a very lengthy investigation. The scene is still being processed. Search warrants have been obtained and executed, and they will still be obtained. There's a lot of uh, digital footprint, uh, electronics that we'll have to go through. So that process is ongoing. Um, Information has also come as a result of some of this investigation that the individual was here a few months ago back in early March. Um, So as I said, uh, there's a lot of material to go through. So that uh, we have confirmed now that it appears that individual was here uh, back a couple of months ago in early March. So at this point, like I said, going to be a lengthy investigation. Things will change. Information will change as we uh, become aware of that. Uh, that's about all I have on the investigation at this point. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll now hear from uh, U.S. Attorney for the Western District, Trini Ross. The federal investigation is continuing. We're working again jointly with our state and local law enforcement partners regarding the threats that have been going around on the Internet. We have a point of contact person in my office to deal specifically with those threats, as we have several prosecutors dealing with the investigation of the crime that took place on Saturday. So the U.S. Attorney's Office is actively engaged in this investigation. We will continue to be. and. Um, We'll continue to work with our law enforcement partners and the district attorney's office, D.A. Flynn, as necessary. Uh, We'll now hear from Erie County District Attorney John Flynn. So I want to touch on a couple of topics right here this afternoon. Uh, And I'll piggyback on what the mayor said at the end here. Uh, First of all, those of you who are local reporters know my M.O. And, and how I proceed with talking about investigations and matters uh, during the course of the legal process. Some of you from out of town, um, let me explain how I work. Uh, 
once an arraignment has happened, I pretty much shut down uh, because the legal proceeding has started and I just do not talk during the course of the legal proceeding. In this matter right here, obviously this is a very high profile case. There's a lot of information out there. Um, I made an exception for today. So this today, Monday, being the first business day since Saturday, um, I've done a number of interviews today. I will continue to do some more interviews tonight. I'm here standing right now in front of you. Um, but after today is over, I am done. Uh, and after today is over, the next proceeding that will take place will be the felony hearing. And once the felony hearing is over on Thursday, the matter is going to go, for lack of a better phrase, into grand jury posture. So once it goes into grand jury posture, the envelope of secrecy now is going to cover everything. And we're pretty much going to shut down all investigative, all prosecution information. Uh, so that's kind of the game plan going forward. I can tell you right now um, that there has been a new development with regard to the prosecution. The, as, as all of you know, on Saturday night at the arraignment, the defense attorney made a request for an, a forensic examination. That request was to the judge that two medical doctors look at my client and evaluate him to determine whether or not we can proceed. Less than 24 hours later, the defense attorney withdrew that request. So that forensic examination has now been withdrawn. Uh, I um, don't see the need to ask for it myself, so I'm not going to ask for it. Um, the judge has the ability, sua sponte, on his own, for those of you who didn't take Latin, um, on his own to uh, order the investigation, uh, a forensic. He did not feel the need to do that, so the mental health forensic part of this has now become a moot point and is now off the table. So we are proceeding now to Thursday's felony hearing. Uh, one of two things is going to happen at that felony hearing. The defendant is either going to waive that felony hearing or the felony hearing is going to happen on Thursday and then we'll go forward. So, again, just kind of a, I'm just trying to, you know, let everyone know in advance. Once that felony hearing happens on, 30, uh, on Thursday, the quote-unquote grand jury investigation is going to begin and I will not be able to talk more about anything having to do uh, with this investigation until uh, there has been an indictment on this matter. Uh, again, for those of you out of town, my MO is after an indictment, there will be an arraignment on the indictment, and I will do a press conference on the arraignment on the indictment. But then...
once I do a briefing on the arraignment on the indictment, I again shut down again until trial. So just kind of want to let everyone from out of town know how I operate. I've been operating that way for the past five and a half years. I'm going to continue to operate that way, even though obviously this is a very high profile case. The second thing I want to say is that, you know, I, I understand that there is a court of public opinion out there. I understand that there's the narrative out there that there is so much evidence, it's overwhelming, this guy is guilty, this guy did it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, 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 I understand that court of opinion. I, I understand emotions are high. I understand the rawness of this matter. However, I do not operate in the court of public opinion. I operate in a court of law. And this defendant is innocent until proven guilty. Let me repeat that. He is innocent until proven guilty. He has only been charged right now with one charge. And that's it. It is an accusation. It is an allegation. And that's all it is. As a prosecutor, I have three communities that I have to protect their rights. I have to protect the rights of the public, the victims, and the defendant. And I have to ensure that the defendant has a fair trial here in Buffalo, New York. That is my job, to ensure a fair and impartial trial. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that that happens. The last thing I want to talk about, and I want to piggyback what the mayor said, there's a lot of chatter out there. There is a lot of threats out there that I'm hearing about and that we're hearing about in law enforcement. One of those threats happened yesterday. 52-year-old man from Buffalo yesterday, allegedly, and again, allegedly, uh, called up a pizzeria at 12.05 p.m. and made threatening comments to the employee referencing what happened at Tops. 45 minutes later, allegedly, that same individual called up a brewery in downtown Buffalo and made similar threatening comments, again alluding to what happened at Tops. The pizzeria and the brewery called BPD. As usual, BPD did a great job, found out who this guy was, went and arrested him last night. We held him last night because it was a D felony and under the New York State bail laws, we can hold someone overnight for a D felony, which we did. We held him overnight and we arraigned him this morning on a D felony, making a terrorist threat, facing up to seven years in jail. Now, what's ironic is that this is a non-bailable qualifying offense. <laughs> and in this case here, the judge ordered a forensic on him as well. So he's being held pending a forensic. 
But once that forensic is over, he has to walk free. That's something we also got to tweak in the bail laws right there, where we can hold someone overnight and arrest them on a D felony and hold them on an appearance ticket, but after he gets arraigned, we can't hold him and put him on bail. We got to let him walk out the door, which is going to happen here in this case once the forensic is over. But I go off on a tangent there. I'm sorry. Let me get back to the threats here that's going on. This is what's going to happen if you make threats. You are going to get arrested, and then I am going to prosecute you. So let, let this case send a message out there to any tough guy or anyone who wants to be cute out there in sending messages or threatening anyone or threatening to do anyone or putting anything on social media, I will find you and I will arrest you and I will prosecute you. And I, I don't mean to speak for Trini, but so will she. So let this case send a message Again, this man is innocent until proven guilty as well. He has just been charged. It's an allegation. I'm not saying he did it, but I'm saying he's facing seven years in jail, and that's what anyone in the public is going to face if they want to threat and if they want to reference the awful tragedy of Tops. Thank you, Mr. District Attorney. I want to thank the uh, media for bearing with us. This is a very active working firehouse, so there might be more in and outs uh, with uh, fire apparatus. Uh, now I want to just uh, thank again law enforcement that has worked in a collective and collaborative way. Yesterday uh, I heard from the director of the National FBI Director Ray pledging the resources of the FBI at the very highest level. Steve Belanja, the special agent in charge of the FBI here in Buffalo, has been a tremendous partner, and we're going to hear from special agent in charge Belanja right now. Thank you, Mayor. I just want to make a couple of comments first. There have been questions in the community about when the processing of the Topps grocery store will be completed. The FBI laboratory uh, at Quantico has provided advanced tools and advanced training uh, teams that have been trained in special techniques that can be used to map uh, the location, can be used to create digital models can be used to create physical models as well as mapping and tra uh, the trajectory of uh, bullets. This process is painstaking. It takes time and we will continue as quickly as possible to process that scene so it can be released back to this community which relies on this grocery store so much. But I will say we have to take our time. We have to be methodical. That is what the victims of this horrible tragedy deserves. Also, to the mayor's point, besides the evidence response resources that the FBI has provided, the entire FBI Buffalo office is dedicated to this investigation, along with enormous resources from our state, federal, and local partners, including the ATF. We have resources that have been provided by headquarters, including from our domestic terrorism unit, 
from our criminal investigative division, from our victim services division, who has sent approximately 10 individuals up to help care for the needs of the victims in this horrible tragedy. Along with that, our headquarters has sent up resources from our evidence, uh, our employee assistance program, rather, who is going to help, they are going to help tend to the needs of the first responders, not only at the FBI, but also with our state and local partners, including the Buffalo PD, who had a lot of officers that were in on that horrible scene. So we were we are putting all available resources on this investigation. All of us collectively, state, federal, and local, are working around the clock to get answers and get justice for the victims of this horrible, horrible crime. Thank you. Turn it over to Chief Garcia. Our, uh, Thank you, uh, Steve. Uh, the Erie County Sheriff's Office continues to provide all resources, all manpower to uh, both the uh, Buffalo Police Department and the FBI here. I'm so proud to work shoulder in shoulder with Commissioner Joseph Grimalia and uh, Special Agent in Charge Stephen Belangia and um, also our prosecution, the Honorable John Flint and the DA's office and Ms. Trini Ross in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, you can be confident that you have a great team in place and um, everything will be done properly. I am so proud of the community. I walked around today and um, this individual that came here and tried to divide the city of Buffalo and Erie County did not succeed. People are stronger. We're uh, more united than ever, and uh, kudos to all, all the people. I Again, I, the, my condolences and that of the sheriff's office goes out to all the victims and their families. In regards to uh, incarcerated individual 157103, uh, he continues to be in our um, custody. He continues to be on suicide watch, which means he's in a... Um, a cloth smock, which is um, ligature proof, with a blanket, which is ligature proof. He's in a segregated unit, aside from the uh, rest of the uh, general population, and that's for his safety. Uh, he continues to uh, be offered uh, both uh, health, uh, physical and mental health. Um, so um, he will... I will ensure that he will continue to be safe from himself and from everyone else. Uh, again, thank you to uh, Mayor Brown, and uh, thank you to all the uh, law enforcement and uh, working together. This is what makes Buffalo special. Thank you. We'll now hear from the Majority Leader of the New York State Assembly, Crystal People Stokes. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, this is a community that is, without a doubt, in a lot of pain. Uh, people are hurting. But I want to commend law enforcement who are collectively working with the mayor and his team to do exactly what should happen, and that is to make sure that justice prevails. I will remind you all, though, that as an African-American, there are a lot of people in this community who are hurting because they know that justice for all is not specific enough. Sometimes people get left out of that justice. 
This can't happen this time. It can't happen this time. I understand, just like the guy who called in the, the threats to the pizzeria and to the beer establishment, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But this young man was walking around with a camera on his head. He showed the whole world what he was doing. And I understand he got to go through a court. I get that. But a lot of the anger that people are having aside from the fact that their loved ones have been murdered for going to the supermarket is that justice is not specific enough. This can't be another one of those cases. I want to all honor all the people who have called my office from all over the state offering support to this community, including the businesses that have called and offered to support the families with food, with hotels, with airlines to be able to get here to come to a funeral, including the people who are willing to help pay for the funeral. People have poured out their love to Buffalo, and that's what we're going to pour back. That's how we're going to heal. People who want to bring us hate and expect us to assume that hate because that's what they have is not going to happen here. There will not be an outpouring of hate. There will be an outpouring of healing. We will all heal together, and we will ensure this time, Mr. DA, Mr. Law Enforcement, and Ms. Trini, that justice for all is specific enough, and it means everybody gets justice in America. Thank you. We'll now hear from the Erie County Executive, Mark Polencars. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. And on behalf of the people of Erie County, I just want to commend the tremendous work of the entire team here, uh, starting, of course, with the City of Buffalo, with the Buffalo Police Department. Uh, it, it truly has been a, a, a united effort to address this. Uh, the majority leader is correct. There's a lot of people in pain. There's a lot of people hurting, and truthfully, none more so than the families of those who were taken on Saturday. Uh, the Erie County Medical Examiner's Office is in the process of performing the autopsies. We've had calls as to when the, the deceased will be released to the families through their funeral directors. Uh, I've been advised by the Erie County Medical Examiner's Office they expect to complete the autopsies by the end of day on Wednesday. Uh, there is a process that has to be followed uh, to ensure that the evidence that is provided to the District Attorney's Office so that they can successfully prosecute this manner is followed to a T and therefore they do anticipate that they should be able to complete that process for each of the deceased by the end of Wednesday. Uh, as a family member, if you have questions, you should contact your funeral director and the director will make the direct contact then to the Erie County Medical Examiner's Office. Uh, the Erie County uh, Department of Mental Health has been coordinating mental health services for the community. Uh, as most people know, we have a drop-in center at the Johnny B. Wiley Center, just not too far away from here, 1100 Jefferson. Uh, we started that yesterday, 9 to 9. It is open today, 9 to 9. Uh, we've had an increased usage at the Johnny B. Wiley Center for both adults, and we have specialized services for children. Uh, and therefore, we will be continuing the Johnny B. Wiley Center drop-in uh, mental health service counseling. If you just want to talk to somebody, regardless of whether you are at the scene, uh, you are uh, a relative of a victim, or just someone who's in pain, like we know so many in our community are, you can come down to the Johnny B. Wiley Center and you will have a discussion with a trained uh, counselor. Uh, for those who are not able to go to the Johnny B. Wiley Center, uh, we also, of course, have our 24-hour uh, crisis hotline 
through Crisis Services, you can call 716-834-3131 to talk to a trained individual anytime. doesn't matter if it's afternoon or 3 o'clock in the morning. It is a 24-hour staffed phone number, uh, and I, I want to thank everyone in the local crisis intervention field and mental health counselors. They've all come together to offer their services so that the people of this community can heal as quickly as possible. And then, of course, we know that the top supermarket is closed, and it is an in integral part of this community, and, and because of its closure, it has basically created a food desert in this neighborhood. So there are many partners who, of course, are working to ensure that the community has access to fresh quality food. Uh, and I want to thank Tops Markets as well as Feed More of Western New York for collaborating with the Erie County Department of Social Services and Department of Health. There is a food distribution center at the Resource Council of Western New York uh, building at 347 East Ferry, which is literally a couple blocks away from the site. Uh, there are stores, of course, neighborhood stores that exist, but many of them don't have fresh food and meats and vegetables. Uh, there is a refrigerated vehicle on site that's being provided by Tops Markets, and Feed More of Western New York is doing the same thing so that individuals do not have to travel out of their immediate neighborhood to access fresh quality food. Uh, and the goal is to continue that through May 27th. Uh, we understand that there was a significant line of individuals there today, uh, and that will continue. We may open up another site in the immediate area so that there is sufficient uh, locations for the public to get to. Uh, if we do open that other site, we will announce it to the general public. Uh, but once again, we are all working together to not only help this neighborhood that's in crisis and the individuals who unfortunately uh, are dealing with uh, serious mental health concerns as a result of this, uh, but to heal as a community so that we are stronger. Uh, if this gentleman came here to hope, hopefully to divide our community, he did the complete opposite. We are united like we've never been before. Thank you. This mass shooting event in Buffalo uh, has brought together uh, many elected officials at every level of government, uh, elected representatives working uh, to make sure the people of this community are taken care of in the aftermath of this horrible violence. Uh, we're joined by Council President Darius Pridgen. We're going to hear from the Council President. Uh, thank you, Mayor. And um, Buffalo is known as the city of good neighbors. And that's why it took somebody to come from outside of Buffalo to come into the city of good neighbors. It wasn't somebody from inside. But what happened, and if you walk these streets right now, people have arrived from not just Western New York, but from across the country. People have come into our churches. People have offered help. And people have stood up. But I want to be clear. It's not enough to send money if we don't stand up against racism, if we don't stand up against those who feel that white supremacy as a system is okay. And so I've been encouraging people who have called me all day long to say, what can I do? Tell the truth. Tell the truth that this is not the only racist and not the only white supremacist believer in our country and have the uncomfortable conversations at home. Have the uncomfortable conversations on your job. Lose some friends who disagree with you. And when you say to someone, especially 
someone who has been through this tragedy, I'm, I'm checking on you. If you just say I'm checking on you, it's not enough. After saying I'm checking on you, you might want to stand up and say, and what happened in Buffalo, New York was horrible and horrific and should not be tolerated in any country, in any community. Our community is stronger. I'm joined by common council members who are here. We're stronger and we're going to get stronger. We may, we may not be the same, but we're going to be okay. Finally, and thank you, Mayor, my, I'm most concerned and thank you, County Executive, for the counselors. I had to send two teenagers to school today. My wife said no. I said yes. I won. About 11 o'clock, I lost because I called her and said, you can go get them from school. And when she picked up my youngest, he had already had a horrible day. Our community needs to take advantage of those mental health counselors, and not only our community, but communities who are affected and hurting across this country to make sure we take care of us. Thank you, Mayor, and thank you for your leadership and to all of our- A city in pain. We've been listening to an update from various officials in Buffalo, New York, after that horrific racist rampage on Saturday at the grocery store, targeted because the grocery store is in a predominantly black area. Uh, The officials announced that the suspect uh, is in custody. He remains on suicide watch. He's isolated in jail. Officials also detailing a series of other threats over the last few days in Buffalo, including some on social media, a different individual who allegedly called two businesses and referenced Saturday's massacre, who is now potentially facing jail time himself. CNN's Brian Todd is in Conklin, New York, where the suspected shooter is from, several hours away from Buffalo. And Brian, uh, what stood out to you when you heard the officials talking about the investigation? Well, Jake, what stood out to me is the new information that we're getting uh, that this suspect, Peyton Jenron, uh, visited Buffalo in early March. That is very significant, and it speaks to the planning that he allegedly did for this attack. Now, we need more details. Of course, there are reports out there that he scoped out that particular store, but the officials didn't really allude to that. We do know that they did say earlier today that uh, they believe that he planned on leaving that store after his attack and going to other stores, possibly down the street. So. Of course, you put those two items together, that he visited Buffalo in early March. Did he actually visit that store and scope it out in some detail? It looks like, given the visit in early March and the plan to go down the street, that he might have at least scoped out that store and a couple of others, Jake. All right, Brian Todd, thanks so much. In the wake of Saturday's attack, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming went after the leaders of her own party, tweeting, quote, the House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. History has taught us that what begins with words ends in far worse. GOP leaders must must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them, unquote. So what exactly is Congresswoman Cheney talking about? Well, you can look at other things from her caucus that she has criticized, such as comments from members of her party that mesh rather seamlessly with the racist, false, white replacement theory. We know what the Democrats are up to here. They want open borders. This is exactly their strategy. Uh, They want to replace the American electorate. For many Americans, what seems to be happening or what they believe right now is happening is uh, what appears to them is we're replacing national-born American, native-born Americans to permanently transform the political landscape 
of this very nation. This administration wants complete open borders, and you have to ask yourself why. Is it really they want to remake the demographics of America to ensure that they stay in power forever? Is that what's happening here? Not to mention, of course, this Facebook ad from Cheney's replacement in the Republican leadership, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, or Congressman Paul Gosar and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who spoke at a white supremacist conference where that bigotry is pushed rather shamelessly. Let's discuss all of this with former NAACP president Cornell William Brooks and Tim Wise, who's author of Dispatches from the Race War. Tim, how much do you think lawmakers and TV personalities who push white replacement theory or, or even something that echoes white replacement theory are to blame for this dangerous ideology spreading to the point that we see actions like this? Well, they're absolutely to blame. Listen, uh, words have consequences, and these are not simple conservative positions on immigration. You know, we've long had debates about what's the best immigration policy and what's the effect of immigration on wages and taxes, and that's fine. But the difference here, it's categorical. Replacement theory is premised on two things that make violence inevitable when enough people hear it. Number one, It's conspiratorial. It's not simply, oh, those silly liberals, they just don't understand what they're doing. It's, oh, no, those liberals slash Jews slash globalist slash whomever are deliberately trying to hurt you, maybe even kill you. Tucker Carlson has said that on his show hundreds of times. The second thing is it's it's posed as an existential threat. It's not just that they're evil people who are conspiring to, you know, maybe raise your taxes or something like that. They're literally trying to harm you, if not eliminate you, genocide you, exterminate you. Once you go down that road, once you accept that idea of evil, pernicious intent on the part of your adversaries, all bets are off. You can't just have a debate anymore about immigration. It's now kill or be killed. They are responsible because that rhetoric is inherently irresponsible. And Cornell, the the killer, the suspected killer, um, Mm. he wrote a screed uh, in which he talked at length about his hideous ideology. He did not mention any particular congressman or any particular channel. He talked about being radicalized online. Now, Congresswoman Cheney, she's calling on Republican leaders to publicly reject white supremacy, racism, anti-Semitism, as well as people who believe in it. Explain why, if this individual didn't cite any Republican politicians or Fox personalities, why you still think it is important uh, for them to be condemned if they are uh, repeating, echoing, parroting the same kind of uh, racist theory? Absolutely. So, Jake, let's be clear about this. The racial terrorist in Buffalo cites in his screed, his manifesto, as it were, other racial terrorists as examples and the great replacement theory. The problem here is we have elected officials legitimating, authenticating, sanitizing, homogenizing great replacement theory, making it mainstream. And so whether you have, when you have a racial terrorist citing other racial terrorists and citing their thinking, their theory, uh, their conspiratorial imagine, imaginings, as elected officials, members of Congress are literally giving that license, giving that um, uh, legitimacy, it is dangerous, right? So in other words, if you go back 
to Senator Bilbo back in the 1940s, the senator from Mississippi, who articulated a proto early version of the Great Replacement Theory. Members of Congress then called that out, condemned it because they understood how dangerous it was. And so the point being here is you can whitewash white supremacy. You can try to homogenize white supremacy. It doesn't make it any less dangerous. In other words, words precede bullets. Yeah. Let's be clear about rhetoric precedes the taking of life. And that's what we saw in Buffalo. So, Tim, the, the shooter seems to have been radicalized rather quickly. In the, if you believe his screed, he, he, he writes about starting to browse message boards in May 2020 because he was bored. And two years later, here we are. Yeah. Well, it, it is incredibly disturbing how fast that happened. But listen, those message boards are filled with incredibly intense propaganda. And sadly, a lot of young people, you know, he said he saw a bunch of memes Uh, And that's what convinced him. Well, memes are not evidence. Memes are not footnotes. Memes are not facts. But unfortunately, we don't teach young people in our schools critical thinking, media skills. We don't, you know, we got young people sometimes grow up thinking that if they see a meme or they see something on social media that it's true. We need desperately to be training our young people to discern truth from falsehood. And going back real quick to your last question about, you know, he didn't blame Tucker Carlson or any particular law uh, elected official. Let's be clear. The people on 4chan and these image boards, Reddit threads and other places where he was radicalized, those folks are constantly flacking and adding and, and endorsing Tucker Carlson, talking about how wonderful those folks are. Paul Gosar, all of those folks, they they amplify them. So it creates a feedback loop where the extremes online take you know encouragement from the mainstream and then the mainstream feeds back onto that so that's why there's this con- you know it doesn't have to be that person x is responsible for action y but it is the doom loop that is created by the extreme and the mainstream together that causes these things and will continue to cause them until Republicans in this country and the larger conservative movement come out and condemn it. If they had done that after Charlottesville, if they had done that after Dylan Roof, if they had come out and said, we condemn not just the killer, not just the killing, but the theory that they said was behind it, we might not be here. And they refuse to do that. Tim Wise, Cornell Brooks, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. From one candidate's unexpected surge, Unexpected surge to another's health scare. The drama playing out in a critical primary election from the same Commonwealth where voters helped secure the presidency for Joe Biden. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Pennsylvania voters are headed to the polls tomorrow to choose their party's nominees for a key Senate seat, but not without some last minute twists and turns. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, the Democrat leading the polls suffered a minor stroke and has been hospitalized since Friday in the highly competitive Republican race is seeing a surge from a candidate who not only pushes lies about the 2020 election, but has a history of anti-Muslim and anti-gay bigotry, though she now says she will not back the eventual nominee if she does not win. A chaotic close to the Pennsylvania Senate primary. The leading Democratic candidate, John Fetterman, will spend election day in the hospital, recovering from a stroke he suffered late last week that his campaign did not reveal until Sunday in this video with his wife by his side. We hit a little bump on the campaign trail. Um, It was on Friday. Uh, I just wasn't feeling very well. So I decided, you know what, I need to get checked out. So I I went to the hospital. On the eve of the primary in one of the nation's most closely watched Senate races, far more drama and uncertainty on the Republican side. 
where it's a three-way fight to the finish. A late grassroots surge from Kathy Barnett is threatening to upend a vicious, months-long battle between TV celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz and David McCormick, a former hedge fund executive and Army veteran. All three are trying to win over undecided voters. Donald Trump hangs heavy over the race, where his endorsement of Oz has outraged many hardcore members of the MAGA movement, who are turning to Barnett. Her candidacy caught fire with a compelling personal story and repeated false claims the 2020 election was stolen. How are you going to take someone who can't even galvanize his own base, put them in a general and think somehow he's electable? I don't think so. In a radio interview today, Barnett would not commit to supporting the GOP nominee if she doesn't win. Do you believe that's dangerous for the party, given how important this seat is? Well, listen, I believe the stakes are so high. I think we as Republicans have to win this seat. And so um, I believe I'm going to win this uh, primary. But if I weren't, weren't to win, then I would support whoever the candidate was that was selected by the voters. Republicans are not deciding whether to choose a candidate in Trump's mold. That's been settled. But rather how Trumpian they hope their next senator will be. Dr. Oz is a man who truly believes in make America great again. Oz has struggled to close the sale with conservatives like Rich Hohenschild. Donald Trump is not Jesus. He's capable of making a mistake. The stuff I've seen about Oz, he doesn't come across to me as a conservative. Even President Trump's endorsement is not enough to sway you. No, it's not. Democrats have long seen Pennsylvania as the best chance to pick up a seat to help hold their Senate majority. The retirement of Republican Senator Pat Toomey gives the party a rare opening. Fetterman, the state's lieutenant governor, has maintained the edge in a three-way contest with Connor Lamb and Malcolm Kenyatta. But it's an open question whether his stroke and being off the campaign trail will influence the race. And Giselle Fetterman tells our colleague Jessica Dean that her husband is doing great but impatient to get out of the hospital. But Jake, in one of the many twists and turns of this Pennsylvania primary, he will not be out of the hospital on Election Day. That could take up to a week. So all eyes on that race. But it is the Republican side of the ticket that has many open questions here with uh, certainly consequences for November. Absolutely. Jeff Zeleny in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, thanks so much. Tune in tomorrow night for Election Night in America and primary races in five states. Special coverage starts at 7 o'clock Eastern here on CNN. Coming up next, we've got some breaking news, major new recommendations to help families dealing with the baby formula shortage, plus an announcement from the FDA and one of the manufacturers of the recalled formula. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, bound at the wrists and ankles, shot in the face by Russians and buried with his brother's corpses. How one Ukrainian was able to bring himself seemingly back from the dead. Plus, the sitting Republican congressman who has Donald Trump's endorsement but is still facing seven Republican challengers in tomorrow's primary. We're talking to North Carolina voters about Madison Cawthorn next. But we start with breaking news in our national lead. The FDA and the maker of one of the recalled baby formulas, Abbott, have announced a deal to restart production, but it could still be another six to eight weeks before the formula is back on store shelves. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now live. And Elizabeth, this is essentially a pathway to reopen, but not particularly quick enough for a lot of people, I'm guessing. 
Oh, absolutely not. Parents would like this to be over now, and that is just not going to happen. Essentially, the FDA and Abbott, so Abbott owns Similac, and it's the Similac products that have been recalled, have entered into sort of an agreement. They said you need to do step one, step two, step three, etc., in order to reopen. They've named what those steps are. So Abbott says they could possibly reopen in two weeks, but then it would t- after that, it would take them six to eight weeks to make products and get them out onto the shelves. So we are talking many more weeks until Abbott can sort of start replenishing uh, what they haven't been able to supply during this shortage. So not ending anytime soon. And that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying, look, we're going to change things. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has now come out and said, we are going to change our recommendations for feeding babies. Let's take a look at what those changes are. They're saying instead of waiting until the baby's first birthday to introduce cow's milk, that whole cow's milk may be an option for babies older than six months, babies who usually would take regular formula. They say this is not ideal. They say that they only want babies to do this for a brief period of time. They don't explain what they what that means. They also say the toddler formula, which is a different product, is safe for a few days for babies who are close to their first birthday. So Jake, that's how bad this has gotten that the American Academy of Pediatrics is changing its recommendations, not because anything's changed medically, but solely because of this shortage. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. We have more breaking news for you now in our world lead. The nearly three months long siege at the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine may be nearing its end. Russia says an agreement has been reached to evacuate wounded soldiers from the facility. Ukraine's Azov Regiment, that's the military group which has continually fought off intense Russian attacks on the plant and a group that has ties to far-right elements, released a vague statement a short time ago which seems to suggest the siege is over. Ukrainian officials have yet to comment. This comes as Finland and Sweden say they will apply for membership in NATO, ditching longstanding neutrality and angering Moscow. Russian President Vladimir Putin today warning that the expansion of military infrastructure into the Nordic region will, quote, certainly cause our response. CNN's Melissa Bell's live for us in Kiev. And Melissa, this could be a massive development for the dozens who have been trapped in the plant for months. Uh, that's right. It had become such a symbol of Ukrainian resistance and a really poignant uh, tragedy for the families involved who'd regularly been holding press conferences here in Kyiv to call for their loved ones to be released. You're talking about hundreds of young men and women, many of them severely wounded, who had uh, dwindling medical supplies, about a week's worth of food left, and their families kept saying, look, if someone doesn't intervene from the outside, they're simply going to be allowed to die. They had hoped for foreign mediation, that these young men and women might be sent to Turkey, even appealing to Xi Jinping over the weekend to see what he might do to help. In the end, it was an announcement from the Russian Ministry of Defense announcing that the first a group of wounded soldiers had been taken to Russian-controlled Donetsk town. Now, that is not what the Azovstal families wanted to hear. And as you say, for the time being, the only other statement we've had is relatively vague. Surprisingly, no reaction yet from the Ukrainian side, from Ukrainian officials or the Ukrainian government, which does suggest that they're not uh, terribly happy with a deal that has been reached. We await more details and we expect at some point to hear from President Zelensky on the moment. Elsewhere in Ukraine, even as Russian forces are pushed back in the north by that Ukrainian counteroffensive, as they were earlier on in other parts of the north, it is the war crimes and the cost of the Russian occupation that Ukraine is beginning to count.
This is where Mikola Kulichenko was buried alive. The blindfolds he says he and his two brothers were made to wear by Russian soldiers, still strewn by their shallow grave. Mikola shows us where the bullet entered his cheek. His brothers, Yevgen and Dmitro, were killed, but he managed to escape their tomb. I had to live to tell this story, not to Ukrainians, but to the world, he says. The regional prosecutor's office says a war crimes investigation's been opened. This is Mikola's house, where he lived with his two brothers and along with their sister. On March 18th, he says, Russian soldiers came into the village looking for men that they believed were responsible for an attack on one of their convoys. And that is when the family's nightmare began. Three soldiers entered the house looking for anything that might link the brothers to the attack on the convoy. They found nothing, but what they did find was something to link the family to the military in the shape of their grandfather's military medal. They also found Yevgen's military bag, since as a reservist in the Ukrainian army, he was preparing to go and fight. For four days, their sister Irina heard nothing from her brothers, until... Mikola came back from the dead. I came home and there was Mikola. I looked at his eyes and asked, where are the others? He said, there are no others. Mikola says that after being taken from their home, the three brothers were blindfolded and interrogated in a cellar for four days. They were then beaten and taken to the site of their execution. Two months on, he still struggles to speak. What do I think of the Russians? I hate them with all my soul. They are animals. They should burn in hell. It was only after the Russian withdrawal that a month after their execution, Evgeny and Dmitrio were given a proper burial a tombstone, and the peace that Mikola's been denied. Jake, that drive from Kiev up to Chernihiv near the Russian border is incredibly revealing. Much of the road's been destroyed. It takes a lot longer than it did. The city of Chernihiv, or parts of it at least, lie in ruins. But it is those scars in the countryside outside, not where the shelling and the siege took place, but in the countryside where the quieter occupation by Russia happened. And those scars have been harder to see, uh, harder to say, as you just heard. And they're incredibly difficult to hear, Jake. Yeah. Melissa Bell in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up, the massacre in Buffalo. New information just shared in the investigation. And we're also learning more about the alleged motive in a deadly shooting at a church in California. Stay with us. back with our national lead. Officials in Buffalo, New York, just shared new details about the suspect in Saturday's racist mass murder. 13 people were shot, 10 killed at the Topps grocery store in the predominantly black Buffalo neighborhood. Just in the last hour, the DA's office sharing that the shooter's attorney is withdrawing his request for a mental health examination. As CNN's Omar Jimenez reports, the suspect told police he had been radicalized online by subscribing to a racist doctrine called white replacement theory. What once was a neighborhood supermarket is now a crime scene. 
investigators piecing together the sequence of events in what authorities say was a racially motivated attack. The Buffalo police commissioner told CNN the suspect planned to continue his shooting rampage if he wasn't stopped. He had plans had he gotten out of here to continue his rampage and, uh, and continue shooting people. He'd even spoken about possibly going to another store. The Erie County District Attorney tells CNN the suspect seemingly planned on killing more black people if he could. It appears that way. Again, we need to drill down further. Drilling down further to the home where the 18-year-old suspect lived with his parents, to the gun store where the weapon was purchased before he allegedly drove three and a half hours to get to the supermarket in Buffalo because authorities say its community had the highest percentage of black population of any zip code in upstate New York. We are going to look into everything that this young man was uh, doing and thinking. Including analyzing the alleged shooter's past. How last year, New York State Police paid him a visit after he did a high school project on murder-suicides, according to the Erie County Sheriff. He stated um, a facility. I don't, I'm not sure if it was a hospital or, or a mental health facility for a day and a half. His state of mind also being analyzed. Just before heading to the market, he's believed to have written and posted a 180-page statement outlining his racist beliefs and the attack. Then the Buffalo Police Commissioner says he live-streamed the horrific attack that has scarred this community. A community still grieving over the lives of 10 of their own. Gunned down in a matter of minutes. Ruth Whitfield was 86 years old and on her way back from visiting her husband in his nursing home when she stopped for groceries. Her son called and called. No one ever answered. You're looking for her. You find out. You go home. What's going through your head? I'm angry. I'm hurt. She was a beautiful person. Um, we're still we're still in the midst of this thing. One of the things that uh, we as a family I wanted to ensure is that we call it what it is. It is white supremacy. It is hate. It is racism. It is bigotry. And and we got to call it what it is and stop beating around the bush. And, and, and take it head on because it's proliferating. Um, it's not getting better. And we just heard from a variety of public safety officials not too long ago here in Buffalo who outlined that this alleged shooter was shot at multiple times before eventually surrendering uh, to police, shot at by someone he allegedly uh, eventually killed. Uh, also, in regards to this potential shooter, we learned that he was allegedly in the area as recently as this past Friday, but also as early as back in March. That's a thread they are continuing to investigate as well. He pleaded, this alleged shooter pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder over the weekend and is expected to be back in court on Thursday, of course, as we expect President Biden to visit tomorrow, Jay. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Buffalo was not the only city reeling from a mass shooting this weekend. One person died and another five senior citizens were injured when a man opened fire at a church in Laguna Woods, California on Sunday. Today, investigators are sharing more details about the scary attack that day, including that the shooter allegedly chained up doors, disabled locks within the church, and even tried to nail one of the doors shut. CNN's Camilla Bernal is in Laguna Woods, California, where police are now sharing the identity of the alleged shooter. Uh, Camilla, what do we know about him, and are police sharing any sort of possible motive? 
Hey, Jake, yeah, authorities are saying that this was a politically motivated shooting. Today, they shared just the evil and the nightmare that was lived here at Geneva Presbyterian Church. Now, remember, this shooting took place at a luncheon that was held by the sister church, Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, made up of mostly elderly Taiwanese members. And authorities say that this man um, essentially was upset about political tensions between mainland China and Taiwan. They say uh, he left notes describing his anger towards the Taiwanese community. We also know, as you mentioned, that he used chains and superglue to lock the doors. But we also heard from authorities that he had additional ammunition and had Molotov cocktails ready to go. This is how the sheriff described his actions. We know that he was um, very intentional in his plan. We know that he uh, formulated a strategy that he wanted to employ. Uh, it was very well thought out uh, from how he had prepared both being there, securing the location, placing things about the inside of the room to perpetuate additional uh, victims if he had the opportunity. So that is methodical. Uh, we know that took place at least 24 hours in advance between his travel to Orange County from outside the area. Now, I am choosing not to name the suspect, but it is important to point out that this 68-year-old Chinese man had been in the U.S. for a while now. He is a U.S. citizen, and he most recently lived in Las Vegas. He drove here on Saturday with no connections to this church. At the moment, he is facing one felony count of murder and another five felony counts of attempted murder. The district attorney here in Orange County saying he expects more charges. He says he faces life without the possibility of parole and is considering the death penalty. Now, federal authorities also opening a federal crimes investigation. So there are likely many more charges coming in the near future. Jake. All right, Camilla Bernal, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Today, we're learning more about the victims killed in Saturday's horrific racist attack in Buffalo. Aaron Salter was working as the supermarket security guard and fired multiple shots at the suspect. Buffalo's mayor says Salter was a hero. 52-year-old Margus Morrison was at the market buying snacks for the weekly movie night he had with his wife. His stepdaughter says he'll be remembered for his kindness and his humor. 32-year-old Roberta Drury moved to Buffalo eight years ago to help her brother who's battling leukemia. 62-year-old Geraldine Talley was doing her regular grocery shopping with her fiancé when she was killed on Saturday. She was the mother of two beautiful children, and she was an avid baker. 65-year-old Celestine Cheney was a beloved grandmother of six and a breast cancer survivor. Her family says Celestine was one of the most loving and caring people and above all, a fighter. Hayward Patterson was a 67-year-old taxi driver. He was waiting outside of the market for passengers when he was killed in the parking lot. His nephew says Hayward took pride in helping people and would give them a ride even if they could not afford to pay him. Catherine Massey was 72 years old. She was a community activist and a writer. She was passionate about making Buffalo a safer place to live. 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield was visiting her husband in a nursing home, as she did every day. She stopped at the supermarket to get some food on her way home. Pearl Young was a substitute teacher and a true pillar in the community, her family said in a statement. She was 77 years old. 53-year-old Andre McNeil was also killed in the shooting. May his memory and the memory of all of those lost in the shootings over this weekend be a blessing. We'll be right back. 
In our politics lead, former President Trump telling North Carolina Republicans give Congressman Madison Cawthorn, quote, a second chance, though, to be candid, Cawthorn's various scandals number far more than two. Trump did acknowledge that the embattled lawmaker has made, quote, some foolish mistakes recently. But as CNN's Diane Gallagher reports, the questions remain whether or not Trump's endorsement is more important to his supporters than a member of Congress who is so embarrassing both Republican senators are trying to oust him. The mountainous tree-covered landscape of Western Carolina has become an ugly political battleground. Cawthorn will lie about anything. As Republicans wage an all-out war on embattled but Trump-endorsed Congressman Madison Cawthorn. He faces off against seven GOP challengers in Tuesday's primary, who cast the scandal-plagued representative as absent, fame-hungry, even dangerous. A lot of things that he's said and done recently has aired in other countries as propaganda. That goes back to a national security issue. Pitching themselves to the very red district as more serious, less distracting alternatives. Instead of talking about uh, what lingerie that our congressman might like to wear in his spare time, we need to be talking about inflation (laughs) and real issues. Republicans have rallied around the other candidates, like state Senator Chuck Edwards, who has the backing of North Carolina's most powerful players, including Senator Tom Tillis. Putin used Cawthorn's claims. And the six figures that a Tillis-connected super PAC has dropped on attack ads. I've really never seen the swamp launch such a coordinated attack against any individual in politics except for Donald Trump. Former President Donald Trump endorsed the 26-year-old Cawthorn more than a year ago though he's generally stayed away from the race. But on the eve of the primary, Trump posted on his Truth Social platform, rehashing Cawthorn's background while adding, recently he made some foolish mistakes, which I don't believe he'll make again. Let's give Madison a second chance. And we found plenty of voters in Cawthorn's hometown of Hendersonville who plan to do just that. Well, I think he's a good kid. It's political. Everybody's trying to you know, do what they can to make themselves look good and make the opponent look bad. A lot of it's made up, fabricated stuff. But for others, between the unflattering headlines, poor congressional attendance, and fights over whether he shut down district offices, it's just too much drama. He's a real narcissistic, and I'm just not into that. North Carolina's 11th district is massive and rural, making voters both physically and digitally hard to reach. But one Cawthorn misstep that did seem to reach the entire district, his move late last year, when new maps were drawn to leave it behind. I will be running for Congress in the 13th congressional district. This move is not an abandonment. But a lot of people took it that way. So... When Madison Cawthorn decided to leave the congressional district and run in Charlotte, he asked me to step in and run as the America First candidate. And when the court redrew the maps, Cawthorn came back. Now, adding some of the unpredictability that we expect to happen tomorrow, Jake, unaffiliated voters, more than 40 percent of the ballots that were cast in the Republican primary in this district have been from registered unaffiliated voters. There were movements encouraging Democrats and even moderate voters to vote against uh, Cawthorn in this primary. Also, a winner of a primary in the state of North Carolina by law must get 30 percent plus one. Jake, experts think that that could potentially benefit Cawthorn because the GOP uh, group here is so large. Oh, yeah. He could absolutely be reelected. Diane Gallagher from North Carolina. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with former top aide to House Speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner, Brendan Buck, 
and the former National Coalition's director for Biden-Harris 2020, Ashley Allison. Brendan, uh, let's start with Trump's kind of last-minute support of Madison Cawthorn. It's not a formal press release. He does not specifically say he's endorsing Cawthorn. But he said voters should give Cawthorn a second chance. Is that going to be enough for Cawthorn, or does he even need that help at this point? Yeah, it doesn't help. Um, you know, the last point I think is the most critical one. You only need 30 uh, percent in North Carolina to get get through a primary. So I think that's that's probably enough. Um, you, you know, Donald Trump, if you look at if there's any consistency behind what he does when he gets involved in congressional races, though, it's whatever is worst for the GOP. Uh, this is a moment where you actually have your Republican leadership. You have the Freedom Caucus. You have everybody across the, the Republican House conference ready to move on from Madison Cawthorn. He's been an embarrassment, absolutely lost the confidence of his colleagues. Uh, but here Donald Trump comes in just to make sure that he sticks around, um, I guess, because he thinks that he's uh, you know, going to defend him to, uh, to the death. Uh, but once again, he, he steps into in a moment where uh, we could possibly be done with a really bad member of Congress and, and he comes in to save him. Ashley, I wonder what you think about this, because it's true. It's almost as if all of the Republican Party, with the exception of Donald Trump, has abandoned Madison Cawthorn. And yet, I mean, if you look at the array of House Republicans, he's hardly the most offensive one. I mean, he certainly has done a number of very embarrassing, cringeworthy things, including uh, his participation uh, in what happened on January 6th. But then you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, you have Paul Gosar. I mean, you have, these are individuals who have literally flirted with white supremacists or said offensive things themselves. Why do you think there has been such a, a push to get this one Republican out? I, I'm not really sure, actually. I try not to honestly get in the heads of too many Republicans in this day and age, but I'm not really sure why they have distanced themselves from uh, from. Cawthorn. I think the interesting thing, though, is that the party hasn't necessarily distanced themselves from Trump. So while they may be taking a step away from uh, this particular candidate, they're not, you know, you're not going to see these Republicans say like, but we're totally taking an arm or a length distance away from Donald Trump. So um, I've said it before. I think Cawthorn is a disaster and they don't want unnecessary problems. They have a a wave of uh, challenges ahead of them around those current issue of replacement theory. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is problematic. They don't need someone like a Cawthorn who just have really scandalous acts in the news that draw away from the direction they're trying to take the party, which is not a great direction, let me be clear, but they don't want those um, indiscretions to be a part of their their narrative this fall. Meanwhile, Brendan in Pennsylvania, insurgent GOP Senate candidate Kathy Barnett uh, looks, appears poised to, to win the Republican Senate primary uh, tomorrow in Pennsylvania, uh, she has a history of telling election lies, making just rankly bigoted anti-Muslim and anti-gay statements. Um, now she's going after her opponents, calling uh, celebrity Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick globalists, part of the swamp. Now she didn't get Trump's endorsement, but I have to say, she seems to me more of an obvious heir to Trumpism uh, than McCormick or Oz. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. She's ascendant right now because you have two other quote unquote front runners who nobody seems to be into. Dr. Oz, uh, who everybody, of course, knows, but no one thinks of as a Pennsylvanian or has any real particular ideology that people are familiar with. And, and David Corrick, who probably in a time previous would clear the field, you know, clear establishment type of Republican. But that's not what is in vogue right now. So this is a situation where nobody really likes what you have. So she's ascendant. 
Uh, and again, it could be disaster for Republicans. This is a Republican-held seat, and it's going to be a good year for Republicans. But this seat is by far not a sure thing for us. Uh, and Democrats are potentially going to nominate someone uh, who is not their best candidate either, I don't think, in, in a general election. So here we have a situation where both parties are trying to give it away. But absolutely, she is the most Trump-like. Um, but that is potentially problematic. This is a seat that we, we really, really need if you want Mitch McConnell to, to be the majority leader next year. And we're just you know, flying by the seat of our pants here, nominating someone who hardly anybody had heard of uh, a month ago. Do you remember, uh, Ashley, in one of the first Republican debates, I think it was the very first one in 2015, this is just memory, I, uh, I think Brett Baer asked, you know, is everybody here committed to voting for whoever gets the nomination? Raise your hand if you're not. And I think Donald Trump raised his hand. And we had the same thing happen today with Kathy Barnett. She was interviewed on Breitbart uh, on Steve Bannon's war room, and she would not commit to supporting either Oz or McCormick if she loses to them. She said she would not support globalists. I mean, that's pretty stunning. Yeah, it is. I think that, to your point, Jake, she really is aligned with this Trump ideology. And I just have to be honest, I cannot think about this Republican primary without also thinking about what's going on and what just happened in Buffalo. I think what you see here is this attempt. You have Dr. Oz, who's endorsed by Trump, who is clearly a replacement theory champion. You have Barnett, who is espousing derogatory things about LGBTQ people, Muslim people. These are the alarm bells that people are ringing about. It's not just okay today to condemn the ideology of the shooter. It must be consistent and represented in the people that you are putting in power in your party. And for Dr. Oz to be endorsed by Donald Trump, for Barnett to be spewing these uh, ideologies, it's highly problematic. And it's a signal similar to how Donald Trump raised his hand and said, I'm not going to be a team player and support the GOP nominee. He also said, I'm not going to support the outcome of the elections and starts to undermine our democracy. So I think the Republicans should really pay attention to what's going to happen tomorrow, but also be you can't your actions speak louder in words. And if Barnett is successful, um, it's a strong indication of where the party is doubling down and is really headed. And, and Brandon, quickly, if you can, on the Democratic side, front runner uh, for the Democratic Senate nomination, uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, he suffered a minor stroke on Friday. It had him hospitalized. Um, he didn't disclose it until Sunday. We're now learning he's not going to attend uh, a rally in Pittsburgh uh, tomorrow. W- what do you make of how he's handled this? Yeah, it's disturbing. And there's a lot, a lot of questions you want to ask, and you really don't have time to get answers, it doesn't seem like. Yeah, Fetterman was a risky candidate for them in the first place. That He's running against Connor Lamb, a, a member of the House, who is central casting a generic, a general election candidate, someone that when I was in the Speaker's office, we used to think was unbeatable when he was running in the House just because he's such a good candidate. Fetterman has a lot of questions. He has a history uh, of offending his own party. Um, and, and I think that they, they're, they're running a, a big risk by, 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 by nominating him potentially. And now coming out with, with a health concern, you, you might think that potentially could, could change the game for him. Brandon and Ashley, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Tune in tomorrow night, election night in America. Uh, there's that election music. Primary races in five states. Special coverage starts at 7 o'clock Eastern here on CNN. Please be sure to tune in. What happens if states start targeting women, prosecuting women for crossing state lines to seek an abortion? A look at one proposal that would do just that. Stay with us.
International lead, the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade sometime in the next few weeks. The Republican governor of Nebraska told CNN that if the court does in fact do so, he is planning to pass a complete ban on abortion in his state, even in cases of rape and incest. As CNN's Ellie Reeve reports for us now, anti-abortion activists in neighboring Missouri want to pass a law to stop women from being able to cross state lines to get an abortion. We're going to do everything we can to protect every child in the state. Um, So bans abortions when there's heartbeats and brainwaves at eight weeks. If that gets overturned, there's an 18-week. If that gets overturned, there's a 20-week. Missouri Republican State Rep Mary Elizabeth Coleman has been called the new face of the anti-abortion movement. She's a longtime activist. She has six kids. She's running for state senate. And she's pushed for a lot of legislation to limit abortion. There are a number of provisions in the initial bill that I filed, making sure that Planned Parenthood is not able to be a Medicaid provider. Also, some enforcement provisions to make sure that people who are aiding or abetting avoiding the laws of Missouri are able to have some kind of a legal recourse against stopping that. Some of her efforts have failed, even with Republicans' overwhelming majority in Missouri, like her bill to impose penalties for helping people get abortions outside the state, which didn't pass this year. The bill you introduced was actually referenced in political this morning as sort of what the post-Roe future could look like. There would be penalties for people who went out of state to seek abortions. Yeah, actually, that's wrong. There's penalties for people who aid or abet violating the law. In fact, women are explicitly exempted from that. And what would um, aiding and abetting be? Yeah, so right now, if a woman in Missouri is wanting to schedule an abortion, she'll call the last clinic that's open here in Missouri, and that clinic will actually schedule an abortion in Illinois. And both of the entities are owned by the same legal entity. And so that's a coordinated effort to avoid the laws of the state of Missouri. She played a critical role in Missouri's 2019 abortion law, which includes a trigger ban, meaning if Roe falls, abortion will immediately become illegal in this state, except in case of medical emergency. Mary Elizabeth Coleman is clearly ambitious. She's very excited to impose her beliefs through policy on the vast majority of Missourians. I don't know how she can fix her face to talk about family values or conservative values from a religious frame in a state that has so failed to provide services, adequate housing, job opportunities, food. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Our freedom cannot be bought with the blood of our children. Oh gosh, I wouldn't think of it as a professional political career. I think of myself as kind of taking my turn in a citizen legislature, but certainly I've prayed outside of Planned Parenthood. Um, Just really a longtime advocate for protections for the unborn. Hi, glad to see you again. Listen, when you leave, I would like to share some information with you about women's health care, other clinics that I know are safe and give quality care. Bonnie Lee is also an anti-abortion activist who prays in front of Planned Parenthood. I'm sorry I didn't have my mic on. This is just resources. It's the baby's lives. They're innocent. We fight for them. Oh, you have a good day, sir. Lee is part of 40 Days for Life, an international anti-abortion organization which she says taught her how to approach women and convince them not to get abortions. I wear the voice enhancer because this busy street is so loud, and if I elevate my voice... They think I'm yelling at them. There are people in the anti-abortion community who are yellers. Yes. And that's unfortunate. And we're not going to get anyone to come and talk with us if they're me. One tactic she learned is to recommend crisis pregnancy centers, religious organizations that offer aid but not abortion. 
who's there to help them and say, well, we can help you with childcare. We will help you with getting housing. And if we on the sidewalk can build a relationship to where they'll come over and accept maybe some assistance, we're helping people. And yes, that helps the baby. No matter what happens with this Roe v. Wade decision, our work isn't finished. We still need to be there because women will continue to find themselves in an unexpected pregnancy. And so what better way to help them than to be at a place where they are going, thinking their only choice is abortion. You said that women tend to say the reason they want an abortion is because they can't take care of the baby, they can't afford the baby. Does that ever make you wonder if there's something much broader that's wrong? With society on a much bigger scale than just abortion? Like, why is it so expensive to have a child? Well, I think a lot of times uh, when a woman does find herself in an unexpected pregnancy, a lot of times she's not married. And a lot of times she's getting a lot of coercion from the boyfriend to abort. Well, I just mean, like, the, the services you offer, like, what if all women could get medical care for their infants, you know? Not just those who were directed away from Planned Parenthood. Wouldn't that be nice? Ultimately, the most successful factor for the anti-abortion movement has been that there were people who bought the false premise that these anti-abortion actors were a bunch of really concerned grannies who were out in front of clinics, as opposed to a coordinated, well-funded political operation that was drafting legislation through a long-game legal lens. I just think that abortion is the greatest evil that we have right now in our country. The idea that the value of someone's life would be different based on how old they are is really horrifying to me. Okay, I'm so sorry. I have to gavel okay. in or I'm going to miss. Right. I'll be right. Thank you. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Jefferson City, Missouri. And our thanks to Ellie Reeves for, for that report. Uh, CNN is live in Kabul, Afghanistan, sitting down with one of the most wanted terrorists in the world. That story's next. A key leader of the Taliban is pledging that schools will soon reopen for older girls in Afghanistan. Now, it's a Hardly the first time we've heard such a promise, but this time the promise came from one of the FBI's most wanted terrorists who made the vow on camera to a female international journalist, none other than CNN's own Christiane Amanpour. Christiane joins us now live from Kabul. Uh, Christiane, tell us more about this, this individual, his promise, and why he sat for this interview. Well, it was extraordinary. It's his first ever. Frankly, he's barely even showed his face, um, you know, recently. And he does want to come out now and try to get the international community to recognize the Taliban and to lift sanctions. He knows that it's going to take a lot of work, particularly on the issue of women's rights. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first and foremost, he said he wanted a better relationship with the U.S., even though he is on the FBI's wanted list. There is a multi-million dollar bounty um, on his head, which I put to him. But this is what he said. In the future, we would like to have good relations with the United States and the international community based on rules and principles that exist in the rest of the world. And based on that arrangement, we have made commitment with them. And currently, we do not look at them as enemies. But based on their conduct, the Afghans have reservations about their intentions. 
From our side, the freedom of the country and struggling for the country's defense is a legitimate right in accordance with the international rules. Currently, we do not look at them as enemies. And we have time and again spoken about diplomacy. We are committed to the Doha agreement. Like the rest of the world, we want relations with them. So that Doha agreement, of course, the one that was started with the Trump administration, which led to the chaotic fall of Kabul and the American and NATO withdrawal in the summer. Now, extraordinarily, a Western envoy tells me that, yes, this guy, as he put it, has a lot of American blood on his hands. He's tied in the past and currently to some of the most extremist of the Taliban groups within the movement. But, said this uh, top official to me, he also put women back to work in the ministry, he was the first ministry to do it, and he has successfully combated terrorism. So it is a paradox, and it's really balanced, um, uh, Jake, here, because sometimes a lot of people are saying you have to work with the Taliban because of the terrible, catastrophic humanitarian crisis that's unfolding. That's right. And it's been about nine months, Christian, since the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the takeover by the Taliban. What's it like for you being back in Afghanistan? Well, you know, I, I was here when they first came in and then after they were, they were routed. And when they first came in, they said some of the same things, like we promise this, we promise that when conditions are right. And really, women's rights were not respected at all during the first round. This time, it is different. Many, many Taliban, including uh, this guy, uh, Sirjuddin uh, Haqqani, really do want girls to have education. But there seems to be a split within the more conservative hardline groups that are in Kandahar, south of here. We'll see what happens. All right, Christiana Mampour joining us live from Kabul, Afghanistan. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Growing threat. The stunning new report revealing just how close you may live to America's wildfire danger. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, America burning. In New Mexico, crews are battling what's become the largest wildfire in the state's history. It has burned an area of about 465, 465 square miles. A new map shows the parts of the U.S. most at risk for property damage from wildfires this year. The darker the area, the greater your risk. According to a Washington Post analysis of the data, one in six Americans lives in an area with significant wildfire risk. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.